0: On June 6, 2013, the British government agreed to pay $30.5 million to people who were tortured during the Mau Mau emergency. What was this emergency, and why did the British feel so guilty about it? These are the questions we'll be asking today on Footnoting History. Hello again. This is Samantha, and welcome to Footnoting History. Recently, the British government agreed to pay £20 million, that's roughly $30.5 million, in reparations to people who were tortured or imprisoned during the Mau Mau conflict. But what was this conflict? The history of the Mau Mau is tied up in the history of decolonization. As a general rule, the British are actually fairly proud of their track record in decolonizing Africa. And we're meant to picture um, rather peaceful arrangements with, you know, British gentlemen sitting in back rooms with armchairs, smoking their cigars and discussing how to remove troops from the Gold Coast or from Somalia or from the Sudan. All of these places that were um, were left fairly peacefully. But in Kenya, the situation was different. Kenya had a significant European settler population, and that complicated the task of withdrawing. And Kenya wasn't the only place where this happened. The same might be said if Algeria, Angola, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, all of these places had trouble. But today we're going to be focusing on Kenya. So at the beginning of the 20th century, Kenya was divided into effectively two areas. The Fertile Highlands became the property of the European settler population. In these areas, some of the former landowners were allowed to stay on their lands, but they were known as squatters and they were there as laborers. They had no rights for themselves. The remainder of the local people were moved to what became known as the Kikuyu Reservations, the Kikuyu were the um, dominant African population in Kenya. Now, at first, this um, arrangement actually worked surprisingly well, largely because of the cooperation of the chieftains, who um, would actually take the best and largest pieces of land within the reservations. But over time, the situation began to change. In particular, the Kikuyu population began to grow, And as this happened, there was not enough land, not enough food, not enough wealth to go around, and people began to starve. Around the same time, the price of the agricultural products produced in the highlands actually began to inflate, especially um, as World War II increased demand. This made the um, European settlers wealthier, which encouraged them to adopt mechanization. And as they began to modernize their agricultural techniques, they didn't need as many laborers, and the squatters were forced to move. And where did the squatters go? Well, a lot of them went to the Kikuyu Reservations. Others went to Nairobi, the capital city, which was also growing and becoming increasingly poor. And these squatters who moved, whether to the city or to the reservations didn't have any land to fall back on, they didn't have any um, significant wealth, and they would also begin to starve. And this created a major reason for resentment. Now, there were varied responses among the Kikuyu about how to respond to this. The wealthy wanted to work within the system. They thought if they gained representation within the government ruling Kenya, that they would be able to resolve the situation, and that everything would be fine. The poor, who were much more desperate, were understandably more militant. They wanted to get immediate control over the government and over the land. Um, And it was these groups that would become the Mau Mau. So who are Mau Mau? Um, The Mau Mau were anyone who took an oath, Now, this oath, its specifics really aren't known, but it seems to have had a promise of loyalty, a promise to keep secrets of the Mau Mau, and a promise to give active support. The first people to take this oath were real believers, people who um, were militant themselves, people who really wanted to decolonize Kenya. But over time, other native people were intimidated into also taking the oath, and this was a serious matter, both because oath-taking was actually a very serious event in the local mindset, but also because those who broke the oath would be targeted by Mau Mau insurgents and killed. So now there were a couple of perspectives on what exactly was going on in Kenya, The Europeans saw the Mau Mau oath-taking as a sign of a racial conflict, and the press really focused on a few examples to make this seem reasonable. Probably the most famous event was the slaughter of the Ruck family on January 24, 1953. Roger and Esme Ruck were um, a very well-respected conservative British couple in their 30s, Um, They lived along with their six-year-old son, Michael, in the countryside, and they were upstanding members of the community. Roger was a volunteer member of the police force, and Esme ran a um, clinic to treat sick and injured people, both from the Kukuyu population and the European population. Basically, what happened was one day, the... Mau Mau lured Roger out of the home by telling him that they had captured a member of the Mau Mau and he should come out and formally make the arrest and take the um, prisoner into his possession. He came outside to accept this prisoner and was slaughtered. Hearing his shouts, Esme grabbed her shotgun and ran outside to try to rescue her husband, but she too was cut down. The insurgents then um, entered the home, ransacked it, and killed Michael when they found him in his nursery. Pictures of Michael hacked up and his nursery covered in blood would become the iconic image of the Mau Mau conflict in European news media. Some Europeans were actually much more successful in standing up to the Mau Mau. Kitty Hesselberg and Ray Simpson, for example, were having tea when the um, Mau Mau burst into their sitting room. They then... Um, picked up their shotguns, which apparently they had ready, and opened fire. Three of the um, attackers were killed, and Kitty became an overnight sensation. She she was soon interviewed by the BBC, um, at which time she expressed no regret for the three men she had killed, but she did lament at length about the death of her dog, who had been caught in the crossfire. Um, but this European perspective of the conflict It was actually misleading. Throughout the course of the entire emergency, only 32 European civilians were killed. In contrast, approximately 1,800 African civilians were killed by the Mau Mau. And this points to the true nature of the conflict. What we're looking at isn't actually a racial conflict. It's much closer to a class conflict or a civil war within the Kikuyu people. The first major targets of the Mau Mau were actually conservative clan leaders, with the most famous example being the um, death of a chieftain named Wartuyu in September of 1952. It was this incident that would create an excuse for the European governor, Evelyn Baring, to declare a state of emergency in October of 1952, and we'll get to what that means in just a minute. Other targets of the Mau Mau were Kikuyu government officials, teachers, and oath breakers. So here's the situation at the end of 1952. The white colonists were convinced they were under attack. Meanwhile, the native populace had legitimate grievances and were starting to come apart into a civil war over how to deal with these grievances. So how did the government respond? Well, to start with, they didn't make any real attempt to redress the grievances. Instead, um, Baring declared a state of emergency. Once he did this, it became the government's prerogative to arrest anyone who took a Mau Mau oath, who joined the Mau Mau, who carried any form of arms or munitions, or who consorted with those likely to carry out acts prejudicial to the public order which is to say they could arrest anybody for really the flimsiest excuse. Bering also increased the military presence throughout the colony, um, and in order to do this, he took um, volunteers both for the reserves and for the police. These volunteers would be notorious for their brutality, and they were actually very rarely punished for their overreactions. Here probably the most famous example is the Massacre at Larry. Larry was a relatively conservative Kikuyu community. And in 1953, the defenders of Larry, the conservative defenders of Larry, were lured out of the city. The Mau Mau then rushed in, targeted 15 homesteads that were owned by known conservative leaders. They then killed the 120 people who were living on these homesteads, burned them to the ground, and left. When the volunteers returned home and found that these homesteads had been burned, they began to round up and kill anyone they suspected of being Mau Mau. By the time the British troops arrived the next morning, roughly 200 people had been killed, which means effectively there were two massacres at Larry. The first was severely punished. Over 400 people were rounded up and held for trial. But the volunteers who reacted and, um, and, and immediately slaughtered 200 suspects were not punished at all. So that's one of the major changes that was taking place. By the end of 1954, the Government also set up a set of new courts. These were supposed to allow the um, process of justice to move faster, but effectively what it meant was that there would be more convictions. If you were accused of being Mao Mao and actually lucky enough to make it to trial, you were probably going to be found guilty. So, the government paid by these changes by increasing taxes on the Kikuyu, which again is hardly likely to curry favor and to bring an end to the conflict. By 1952, some of the Maomao were already taking to the woods, where they began to form semi-organized bands, some of whom were, ch- were even organized by men like General China, who had formerly, um, been part of the British troops and knew how to organize attacks. Although the most famous incidents were in the countryside, Nairobi was also a center for discontent and a breeding ground for the Mau Mau, and this was where the government really started to suppress the Mau Mau movement, with what became known as Operation Anvil in 1954. Now, this may just mean me, but it seems that anything that is called Operation Anvil could hardly be a good thing, and this was no exception. In Operation Anvil, the British um, troops and volunteer regiments literally shut down the city for about a month. During this time, they rounded up approximately 50,000 suspects, people who were thought to have either taken the oath or to have supported the Mau Mau in one way or another. Of these, 24,100 were sent to concentration camps. And here we're talking about concentration camps in the 1950s run by the British. These camps did not have enough food. They didn't have sufficient sanitation, which led to um, persistent disease. And they were known for major acts of brutality. There were public castrations. Women were held down by soldiers and raped. And, um, one man was beaten so badly that he was actually thrown out of the concentration camp with a pile of dead bodies. He was then discovered to be alive two days later when somebody came to collect the bodies and brought back to the camp. Um, And it was these incidents and these camps that were the explicit reason for the reparations paid in 2013 or promised in 2013. So Operation Anvil would represent the beginning of the end for the Mau Mau. After this, the insurgents really started to lose wind and order was gradually restored. Um, The emergency, however, would formally continue until 1960. Over these eight years, 32 settlers, 200 British troops, 1,800 African civilians, and at least 12,000 Mau Mau suspects were killed. In 1963, Kenya received its independence. Its first president would be Jomo Kenyatta, who had never at any point supported the Mau Mau, but had been suspected of association with them, and so he actually had been held in one of the camps for the full eight years of the emergency. Kenyatta's philosophy was to look forward. He didn't advocate punishments for either the Mau Mau or for the people who moved against them. And so he was able to maintain some stability. Fifty years later, we're starting to see an admission of wrongdoing. And although money can't resolve this conflict and can't alleviate the pain of the things that were done, we can take some guidance from Jomo Kenyatta and try to move on. As one survivor said to the um, BBC when interviewed earlier this year, The only thing I can do is forgive. You cannot repay us in with sin. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter, The History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the history of the marathon. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!